Welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And apologies again for the audio quality, but I am still laid up with sciatica. But today I'm feeling better. I feel like I might get up and dance because we are welcoming to the podcast one of my best friends on earth, Hamza Zafar. Hamza is an associate professor in the Department of Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures at the University of Washington and author of Ecumenical Community. Language and Politics of the Ummah in the Quran, and we're here to talk about early Islam. Hamza, thank you so much for joining us, my friend. Thank you for welcoming me. Good. So, Hamza, you and I have had a lot of conversations about this, but why don't we just start at the beginning, given that you are a scholar of the early Quran. What is the Quran? And what I mean by that is maybe you can put it in, in the context of the other major books the, the, the Tanakh in the Jewish tradition, the, uh, the Gospels, etc., in the, in the Christian tradition, and how the Quran departs from or connects to these books within which it might often be taught in dialogue in like an intro to religion course at university. Thanks, Danny. Most Muslims would consider the Quran as the unaltered word of God that has been revealed by the mechanism of revelation, wahi in Arabic, from God to the Prophet Muhammad. So the Quran is a collection of these revelations given to the Prophet Muhammad over the course of his prophetic career. But historically speaking, the Quran is very similar to the other scriptures, like you mentioned, the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, and is a metatextual text. It's a text that talks about text. It talks about itself as text and references scripture very directly, uh, both specific scriptures like the Bible and the, and the Gospels, and also scripture as like an idea, scripturalism as an idea. So it mirrors in some ways the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, but in other ways it's extreme, it's very, very different from these other texts, especially when we come at it from a linguistic perspective or from a literary perspective, it's a very different type of text. So why don't we just dig into that? I'll, I'll want to get into the actual historical context of when it was formed and the various arguments about that. But let's talk a little bit about linguistics and literary analysis and where the Quran is situated in exactly what you were talking about. For one thing, the Quran goes through a very different redactional process, meaning it goes through a very different editing process than the Hebrew Bible and the Gospels, as we understand it now which is that what we have before us when we're looking at the Quran is the product of a very short period of time. It's a text that was produced or emerged in a very short period of time. One of the reasons why we believe that is that the Quran has no evidence within it that it's aware of the Arab conquests. The Quran belongs to the early 7th century. And in the middle of the 7th century, you get this thing called the Arab expansion, the Islamic conquests, whatever you might call it, but it's the birth of the Islamic empire, this huge uh, historical event that changes the face of the Middle East, of, of Western Asia, of North Africa. None of these events or no event connected to the expansion seems to be mentioned in the Quran. So that leads certain historians, and I, I, I'm part of this group, to believe that the Quran belongs to a period before the Arab expansions. A simpler way of putting it is that the Quran is in some ways a pre-Islamic text, Islamic in the sense of the classical shape that Islam takes, or what, what we think of when we think of Islam, which emerges during the period of the conquests. The Quran belongs to a period before that process. And linguistically, it captures 
that moment. The Quran belongs to the Arabian Peninsula. Much of early Islam does not develop in the Arabian Peninsula. It develops in Syria, in Egypt, in Iraq. But it contains within it linguistically lots of, you could say, there are lots of indications and clues within the Quran of its location, which is in Western Arabia. It's in the 7th century. It's a type of Arabic that is pre-classical. It's mixed with, or not mixed with, it's just the character of the language itself is such that it has within it Syriac and Ethiopic and references to Aramaic or other languages itself that reflect the communities and cultures of Western Arabia in the early 7th century, a world that will disappear with the emergence of the Islamic empire very soon after. And also going back to the earlier point, the Quran is different from the Hebrew Bible and the Gospels in one very explicit way, in the sense that it's not linear. You don't open the Quran and get a story about the Prophet Muhammad or the development of the Muslim community. It's not a linear narrative in any sense. It's a text that's arranged in a different logic. Let's talk about that logic for a second. Just what is what is the logic that it's arranged in? And perhaps you could also, because I'm interested in this, is why was it arranged non-linearly? What does that reveal about maybe the literary culture or the process of, of, of compilation uh, that we could know? So the arrangement of the Quran as it exists now poses a real challenge to historians to explain why does the Quran look the way it does. So the Islamic tradition itself explains the arrangement of the Quran as a piece of revelation, that the Prophet Muhammad received revelation about how to organize now all of these revelations from his entire prophetic career into this particular order. It doesn't lend itself to any easy explanation, but there are two general kind of tendencies, you could say, in the arrangement of the Quran. The Quran is divided into what are called surahs. These are chapters. And the general way you could say the Quran is organized is that it goes from the longest surahs to the shortest surahs. So in general, as you're going through, it's going from really large sections to really small sections. The largest sections are a couple hundred verses long. The smallest sections are a few verses long. Three verses is the shortest one. That's one way it's arranged. The other way it's arranged, perhaps, that you need external sources to corroborate is that it's arranged in overall a backward direction historically, which is that when you open the Quran, what you're reading are the latest revelations to the Prophet Muhammad. And as you move through the Quran, you're moving earlier and earlier to earlier stages in the development of that prophetic career. Does that reflect anything about cosmology or anything that we need to know? Um, I think you get what I'm, what I'm getting at there. What becomes important very early in the Islamic empire is to interpret the Quran. The Quran, in some ways, is a subversive text. It's a text that belongs to a, a prophetic movement. It's this movement, a religio-political movement, organized around a charismatic figure. And the attitude or the orientation of this community, of this group that the Quran is addressing, is subversive in the sense that it's interested in overthrowing the excellent structures of power, whatever they might be. And we can use different tools and sources to describe what they, what they were. The early Muslim community is a normative community. It is the elite of an empire. It's, it's an expanding empire within which Muslims were its tiny, tiny minority. And they remained a tiny minority for a long time. And this was a tiny minority that was concentrated in urban centers. It had in the earliest period, an ethnic character in the sense that this elite was predominantly Arab, Arabian. So the early Muslims develop an interpretive practice around the text of the Quran in order to take kind of its subversive elements and recast them as normative or quietist 
in some ways. So that's really the 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 earliest intellectual production in the Islamic empire is this kind of interpretive practice that emerges around the Quran. The earliest one of these is histories of the Quran. So the early Muslims start telling histories of the Quran, which want to which try to situate Quranic passages within stories from the life of the Prophet Muhammad. And these are these passages are situated in the stories from the life of the Prophet Muhammad in a way that make them useful or usable or at least not offensive or, yeah, or not anti-contradictory. <laughs> not anti-imperial. Yeah. Right. Not subversive. Makes them normative in some ways. So before we get into that, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, why don't we talk about this is going to sound like a college course, the world of the Quran. Because <laughs> I just I just know like from talking to you, I mean this is a whole world that you know, even though I went to Jewish day school and everything, I really learned nothing about like the Judeo-Arabs and the connections to um, Eastern Africa and the Horn of Africa and everything that was going on. So um, obviously, like you said, the quote unquote world of the Quran will be transcended or changed by the rise of these Islamic empires that come after the, the, the text of the Quran is created. But, but maybe we could talk a little bit about that world and what the Quran reveals about that world and, and anything that you want listeners to get a sense of in order to understand this text in its full complexity. So historically speaking, the Quran emerges, at least this is where the consensus stands right now. The Quran emerges from, as the early Muslim sources say, the early 7th century Western Arabia. This is an area that's along the Red Sea. It's a mountainous region, a desert region uh, that is along the Red Sea. In the 7th century, if we were dropped into Western Arabia right now, into the world of the Quran, what you'd see is an extremely uh, diverse, culturally and religiously diverse context. Arabia was not a homogenous place. It was a crossroads and a place that was inhabited by many different types of communities. Not just ethnically and culturally different, but Arabia, the context of the Quran was also class stratified. So just to, just to give you a little bit of a sense of what Western scholarship, where Western scholarship is at, the early, early Western scholars of the Quran, when they tried to explain the world of the Quran, they kind of created this Orientalist image of an egalitarian tribal environment that was characterized by luxury trade. So an egalitarian environment of rich merchants is what typically is described as the world of the Quran. When you look at the early, early Western scholarship. This 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 picture has like nineteenth century, more. right? Like we're talking nineteenth century. century. Yeah, first yes. first gen. Who, first, who would have yeah, guessed nineteenth exactly. century Europeans would be orientalizing? <laughs> right. I never would have guessed. <laughs> it's highly orientalizing. It imagines this world as again like this kind of like a frozen world that was was tribal, quote unquote, in this abstract way, but also urban in some ways. Was extremely wealthy, uh, but that is not based on the archaeological evidence and the textual evidence, the world of the Quran. The world of the Quran was an urban world. It was the world of cities, and there were cities along Western Arabia, and the Quran belongs to these, the, emerges from the context of these cities and is highly suspicious of populations that live outside of the cities. It, in fact, calls them Arab. That's the word Arab. That's where the word Arab comes from. The Quran uses the term Arab to mean, predominantly uses the word Arab to mean people who live outside of cities. But itself, it imagines itself, its, its world describes its world as the world of cities. These, these cities were, as I said earlier, culturally very diverse. So there are different types of religious communities that live within these cities. But importantly, these cities were class stratified. They had within them a very small elite that the Quran talks about. They're called in Arabic, Mutrafun, the elites of the cities. And these elites um, were able to replicate their elite status, at least the Quranic evidence suggests, over several 
decades or several generations. It wasn't just that there was an elite that emerged and the Quran is referring to them. These were fairly stable uh, class stratified societies that had small elites and a very large, yeah, non-elite population underneath them. Forgive my ignorance. Um, Is this like a collapsing Roman Empire? Like what is like the larger geopolitical context from which this emerged? We don't have to go deep, but I just want to get a sense of like who was governing these territories in the centuries before this moment of the Quran. Western Arabia during this period is outside of the control of both the Roman Empire and also if you go towards the east, the Persian Empire. But both the Persian and the Roman empires have these vassal states that are on the Arabian Peninsula and are Arab states, they're Christianized Arab states that are along the periphery of the Arabian Peninsula. But when you go south towards the world of the Quran itself, which is called the Hejaz in Arabic, it's it's Western Arabia, that was outside of the control of the Roman and Persian states. They also controlled southern Arabia during this period of time. Persia controlled southern Arabia, Yemen and Oman during this time. And there was also another player who was very active in this region, which was the kingdom of Aksum based in the Horn of Africa. When we're talking about the early 7th century in Arabia, this is a period that is right after what are called the Red Sea Wars. During this period, there's a, there's a series of conflicts between, you, I, I'll call them scriptural communities, Jewish and Christian, quote-unquote, Jewish and Christian communities in the Arabian Peninsula. And these are, these are not just uh, ambig- uh, like uh, disorganized communities. These are states. These are communities that live within states, stable states. And there's a series of conflicts between these communities in Yemen, Southern Arabia, and the Horn of Africa. And these are called the Red Sea Wars. So the period of the Quran is immediately after uh, the Red Sea Wars that drew into the conflict also Roman and Persian interest. Because the Romans and Persians were interested in Southern Arabia, which generated a huge amount of surplus, agricultural surplus. And they were also interested, of course, in controlling the Red Sea trade. So whereas the imperial powers were present within the world of the Quran, and the Quran refers to the Arum, to the Persians directly, Mecca and Yathrib and Ta'if and Najran, these are the cities in which the early Muslims were. These were not cities controlled by the, by the empires. They had these kind of localized local government systems. I mean, local informal governments that were essentially elite aristocratic families that controlled these cities. So... I'm going to use probably language that's not apropos, but are they city-states? Are they independent? Are they loosely federated? Do the leaders from each of these cities know each other? Do they marry? In, 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 do they intermarry with each other? What What is the sort of political relationship in these in these cities from which basically Muhammad emerges? In some ways, these you could describe these as city-states, but perhaps more informal than that. These cities are many of these cities in the in the Mecca included are organized around what are called haram. Haram are sanctuaries. So they, they have clearly demarcated boundaries. What, I, what I'm calling cities are just settled settlements, essentially, where, where, the, where the communities are not pastoralists. They're not moving year-round. There are lots and lots of tribes and communities that are pastoralists in Western Arabia. They move year-round on predictable paths. But these are sedentary populations that had clearly demarcated boundaries. And these were called, in Arabic, it's called the haram, which is a sanctuary in the middle of the city. And so there was also a priestly elite. Are there, are there like gates? Like, I'm just trying to get a sense of like, is there, there's a city in a, in a gate uh, behind a wall? In some ways, not in every case. But yes, there are, there's evidence that some of these cities has had walls. Some of these cities had what are called like towers. So whenever the city was attacked, the communities or the tribes that were settled around it would go into these fortified towers. Um, 
There's talk of a moat, like Medina, Yathrib, there's a moat around it. So there were physical features that that demarcated these, these boundaries also. Mecca itself did not have a wall, but it definitely had traditional entrances, ways through which the pilgrims or whoever caravans used to come in and out or, or leave the city from. So to give you an example, I'll give you the specific example of the city of Mecca, which is where the historical prophet Muhammad is from. The city of Mecca was controlled during the early 7th century by what are called the Quraysh. The Quraysh in classical Islamic interpretations or understandings or histories are seen as a tribe, as like one one very specific tribe. But a better way of understanding it is that it was a set of household uh, houses, land owning or not land owning, wealthy houses that had uh, at some point become a confederation of tribes, a confederation of households, and they called themselves the Quraysh. The word Quraysh is also it's ambiguous where it comes from. It means a little shark. There are lots of tribal confederations like this in Arabia that have names like that, little shark, little dog, little cat. So it means little shark. There's no ancestor who's named Quraysh. So it's, it's and Qadrasha, the Arabic word also means to gather together. So it might mean gathering. But the Quraysh were essentially the rulers of the city of Mecca. They were extremely wealthy families, some of whom, some of them owned land and some of them engaged in um, trade. And their wealth was uh, both generated by themselves and also inherited. They, they, they held a, lo- a lot of inherited wealth. And according to the Islamic tradition, Muhammad belonged to the Quraysh, belonged to one of the houses of Quraysh. They were what are called the Quraysh of the, of the valley, Batha, of the inner city of Mecca. And these were the most powerful families. And then there were families settled outside, uh, farther out on the periphery. They were called the Quraysh of the periphery. And then there were lots and lots. These were just the elite families. There were lots and lots of sub-elite and non-elites living among them. People like who were uh, mercenaries hire, or, or, or guards hired for the caravans, leather workers, um, various kinds of manufacturers. There's evidence, archaeological evidence of mining in Western Arabia. And of course, we also have to remember a very large population at this time in Mecca was enslaved. There were slaves held in large numbers by the elites and the sub-elites and the non-elites. So it's a very, very diverse population in that way, but it was centered around these powerful houses. In Mecca, these houses were Quraysh, and yes, they did have relations with other equivalent houses in other cities and ties of marriage that, again, were these ties were reinforced over generations. They didn't just emerge in the early 7th century. They obviously had existed before for a long time. So what is the economic engine of, of a city like Mecca? You said that there's inherited wealth. Um, but they also produce their, their own their own goods and their own surplus. So, so what is the economic engine here? So early on, um, again, the image that was developed for what Mecca looked like was this egalitarian luxury luxury trade city, kind of like a Dubai or something, maybe not, though not egalitarian, something along those lines. But now, the, a, a more kind of pixelated view of what Mecca probably was was, uh, or what Mecca's economy was. It was a diversified economy that depended on the production of primary and secondary goods, primary goods like agricultural goods, for instance, secondary goods like, for instance, I just mentioned earlier, leather manufacturing. So we know in Western Arabia during this time, leather was produced or or, or worked on to produce secondary goods. There's also, for instance, uh, metal work in the area, chain mail was produced in the area, weaponry was produced in the area. Uh, the wealth of the Meccans came from their control, or the wealth of the Quraysh came from their control of the Haram, which was the sanctuary, which was the what demarcated the sedentary area. Within the Haram, 
no raiding was allowed. The Arabian tribes in Western Arabia participated in seasonal raiding, which is that you can imagine there's one pastoralist tribe that has uh, livestock of a thousand animals. And another one also has a thousand animals. But in the course of a year, because of whatever natural phenomena, one tribe experiences surplus. They have now a thousand twenty. And the other experiences uh, scarcity. They've lost their half of their cattle. They only have 500 cattle now. So within the Arabian Peninsula, there was this kind of a seasonality, a practice of raiding, what in Arabic is called ghazwa, which involved the tribe experiencing scarcity had the ability or was allowed essentially to raid the tribe that was experiencing surplus and take from their surplus whatever they needed. The tribe Just a quick question. Yes. Just a quick was that a violent seizure or was it basically a normative? Like a bunch of guys would come and just kind of peacefully take animals in, in a kind of socialistic or communistic way? Something between the two, something between war and sport is what I would describe it. So the tribe that has surplus perhaps has such surplus that it'll tolerate other tribes on the periphery raiding some of its livestock up to a certain point. But it could be that there's a line that they cross and then it becomes a violent confrontation, becomes something that looks more like a, a battle. Of course, in later Islamic sources, these raids are described in, you know, valorized terms as these like glorious battles, these battles, you know. But if you go and look at this, these spaces or if you look at this practice specifically, it wasn't like that. It was a highly, I mean, some elements of it almost uh, resemble jousting, which is that uh, the main warrior from the tribe that's being raided and the main warrior from the tribe that's raiding, instead of everybody getting involved, the two of them would joust and see who wins. And then if the guy who's raiding wins, then he, you know, he gets his, uh, his spoil, whatever it might be. So it looked like that. So there was a seasonality to this in a sense, but only within the haram, raiding wasn't allowed. So to come into the haram, you had to put down your arms uh, to, and this practice, of course, exists among Muslims too, to this day, which is when they go to the cities of Mecca, Medina, and technically Jerusalem, um, they're not supposed to be taking arms with them. They're supposed to be entering into these harams in a, in a ritualized state. So part of where the wealth of the Quraysh came from was controlling the haram. They were the custodians of the haram. And so there were various ways in which they generated revenue through this control of who could come into the space and who could. Now, this space was very important because this was the market space. If you came into the haram, this is where trade happened. And there's also seasonality to these trades. They're called the fairs. There's, there, was, there was fairs over the course of the year. And the Quraysh controlled these fairs where people would come in, put down their arms, engage in trade, do all sorts of other things, marry, etc. And then, you know, leave the city again, go back to their pastoralist communities. That's part of the picture. So a couple of quick questions. Are, is everyone speaking the same language? And what language is that? Everyone is speaking some type of Arabic. And so there's a lot of differentiation. There's a lot of uh, dialectical variation with, within the Arabian Peninsula and what Arabic sounds like. There's also other types of Arabic, like su Southern Arabic, which is a different type of Arabic entirely. So for sure, communities within Mecca were speaking lots of different languages. Also within uh, at least if you use the Quran as evidence, as linguistic evidence of what people were speaking, then people were also speaking Syriac, and there were also Meccans who spoke Ge'ez. Ge'ez is classical Ethiopic, the language of the Horn of Africa. And there's also Islamic historical accounts that describe this, that describe the early Muslim community as having these linguistic communities within it. So it's a multilingual environment, for sure. 
And so are they connected to these spaces of language through trade? So they produce leather goods and then they're trading with the Persian and Roman and uh, a horn of African empires. Is, how, how does that work? In some ways, the trade that they're engaging in is household goods, like very, very normal household goods. There's leather, there's metal, but the vast majority of it is food. It's basic goods, clothes, household consumption goods, not luxury items. There's no evidence for it. There was luxury trade in Arabia, but that was centuries before. The luxury trade that connected Southern Arabia to the Roman Empire. Southern Arabia was exporting frankincense to the Roman Empire, and this involved uh, this was a luxury good, and it produced a lot of wealth. But at the time of the Quran in the early 7th century, there is a large amount of wealth being generated. But this wealth is being generated from the trade, from the trade, from the localized trade of household goods, like Amazon. You know, it's not like luxury goods; it's just basic stuff moving around. But that's what's generating this revenue. Now, Mecca is plugged into a larger local network of other cities. And then that network is plugged into a much larger global, I mean, you know, international network that connects the Horn of Africa to the Mediterranean, connects the Red Sea to the Mediterranean and the Persian Plateau. So a large, much, much larger uh, trade network. But in Mecca itself, it's basic goods that are being traded, but regularly traded. There's regularized mercantile commercial activity. There's fairs and there's also a year-long marketplace. So that's what's generating that wealth. At least that's where the picture is at right now. Do people in these cities have a sense like, I'm a Meccan, I'm a Medinan, or do they have a sense like, I'm a Quraysh, and then I happen to live in Mecca? What do we know about their identities? There's evidence that there's some level of pride or attachment to these cities, Yathrib, Mecca, Najran, etc. But the primary marker of identity within this context was the tribe, Kabila, in Arabic it's called. When we think of the tribe, this is not a small band of people. It's not like a pastoralist tribe, which is a very small band of people. And it is relatively egalitarian. If you're out in the, if you're out moving goods around, everybody can only carry, take what they can carry. So there's less class stratification among the communities outside of the cities. But the tribe within the city was a highly class stratified thing. So there were members of the tribe that might have been extremely poor and members of the same tribe that might have been extremely wealthy. These tribes were had porous boundaries. So membership in the tribe didn't necessarily have to do with blood. It had to do with other forms of alliances. People could become members of tribes, could become members of the Quraysh, and could be kicked out of a tribe, could be, could be uh, excommunicated in some way. Perhaps that's not the right word, but ex- exiled from the tribe also. So the boundaries of these tribes were amorphous. But overall, the metaphor used to describe, you, you asked what was, how do people, what was people's identity? So the metaphor that people used to describe their identity was a patrilineal one, was that if, they, if you and I thought that we were the same community, the way that we would express that would say that you and I had a common ancestor. Now, that common ancestor could be three generations ago or could be a fictional character 20 generations ago or could not exist at all. It's just, But that was the way people expressed communal solidarity through common ancestors. That's what, we, that's what I mean when I say a tribe in the urban context. So um, one thing that, that is interesting is... Let, let's address the question of religion and whether that, that question is, is useful for understanding a period of, uh, like this, or if that even category of religion is, is useful. So 
there seems to be an uh, an element of, of common norms and common laws and accepted notions. Is there an element of holy and unholy? What quote unquote religion do people adhere to? Could you even use that category? Let's get into it. During the period of the Quran in the Arabian Peninsula, there is a shift happening, and the shift is, is 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 happening over the course of a couple of centuries, which is a movement away from what's called civic religion, civic type of religions, towards a type of scripturalism or pietism. So I'll, like, I'll explain what these categories, what, what these terms mean. So civic religion was like, for instance, in the city of Mecca, there were various civic cults. So the civic cults were priestly cadres that controlled a particular sacred sacralized object. This object could be a, a quote-unquote idol, and, you know, idol is an inexact word. It's like a polemical word, but it could be an, a humanoid figure, an anthropomorphic figure, or it could be what's called a battle, like a rock, or it could be a space or a tree or anything like that. But there were these civic cults organized around these sacralized objects that were um, controlled by groups of priests and various tribes. Either one tribe would have one cult or many tribes would have one cult. But these symbols were housed within the city of Mecca. They were housed within the haram. So if you went to a different city and a different haram, you would see those civic cultic emblems housed within that sacred space. But during this period, during the centuries leading up to the Quranic period, there's a shift away from civic religiosity. Civic religiosity involved a practice of sacrifice primarily, which is that the person brings a sacrifice to the temple and the sacrifice is officiated over by a priest it's a contractual relationship with a particular deity, and um, it's a give and take. Now, um, most people within these relationships were not polytheists. They were, they were in some ways monotheists, or a more exact word would be a henotheist, which is that most people over the course of their life were devoted to one singular deity and developed in a sense a relationship with this deity, through the medium of sacrifice. That was, in a very, very small nutshell, what civic, what I'm calling civic religion in pre-Islamic Arabia looked like at this time. But over the decades leading up to the Quranic period, there's a shift, and you get the emergence of scripturalism and the emergence of pietism. Scripturalism is easy, which is you get the sense that uh, you, get, you get a type of religiosity that is organized as interpretive communities around scripture. The scripture, of course, is the Hebrew Bible, but also during this period, you get, uh, you, we know for sure that there were Christian communities reading the Gospels within Arabia at the time. Also, so that too is scripture. And their interpretive communities organized around the Gospel also in, in Arabia. And there are also many, many other types of scripturalist communities, like you mentioned, like what we call Judeo-Christians. But in a sense, other types of, uh, it wasn't just clearly what we think of now as Jewish and Christian. There were lots of other groups also uh, that were engaging in similar types of interpretive practices with the Bible. In addition to that, you have the emergence of pietism. In Arabic, this word is, the word I'm thinking of is the word taqwa, which in, in the Quran is taqwa, which means fear or vigilance of God. It's a sense that your relationship with God is not, or a God, is not externalized to ritual, but that it has this internalized component. It has this element of, quote-unquote, piety, this kind of devotion or attachment or loyalty uh, to God that is internal and that is no longer that no longer confines religious practice to the sacral temple space, but now actually seeps religiosity or religious practice everywhere, 
Now what you're doing in the marketplace is informed by piety. Now what you're doing in marriage is informed by piety. Everything is now shaped by piety. So you get this emergence of pietism and scripturalism during this period of time. And so the environment which the Quran, at least the environment, religious environment that the Quran reflects is very, very mixed. You have these kind of cultic civic practices, and then you have these scripturalist and pietistic practices all mixed together. Surely there would have been people, lots of people that simultaneously engaged in both also, that were not one or the other, but were engaged in both. Yeah. So Hamza, uh, I know Derek has a question, but it's just directly related to this Judeo-Christian Maybe you could yes. just explain that because as an example of what you're talking about and like what you mean by that, and that'll give a sense of, I don't know if syncretism is the right word or if that's doesn't quite make sense in the time, but like, what is a Judeo-Christian and, and how does that embody the, the process you're talking about? It's kind of like a catch-all term, Judeo-Christian. There were specific groups that, were, that are identified as Judeo-Christian, but essentially it describes a tendency which is what historically, there's certain types of groups that, for instance, followed Judaic law, followed the laws of Moses fully, fully observed the laws of Moses, but at the same time also had certain beliefs about Jesus or had messianic beliefs that were informed by Christianity. And so you don't get clearly, um, it's not just that kind of rabbinic Judaism and then, you know, extremely kind of um, antinomian Christianity. You also get these groups in the middle that are, in a sense, mixtures of the two. So maybe syncretism is one way to understand it, that they were syncretic in some ways. But another way of understanding it is that various communities in uh, Arabia are scripturalizing. They're taking on scripturalist attitudes. And so some of those scripturalist attitudes are have come in through Christian means and some of them have come in through Jewish communities that are present in the Arabian Peninsula. Does that explain it? And so we describe that as Judeo-Christian. I mean, there's there's scholars that try to understand the Quran as a Judeo-Christian text. I'm not convinced that's like the best framework to understand it in. But the Quran clearly has a mixture of Judaic and Christian elements in this way, in a, in a way. So it could be described in some ways as Judeo-Christian. But, um, but it also means, it's also a term used technically to mean specific groups, specific sects, uh, within the Near East at this time. Hamza, I, I wonder if um, there's a couple of things I, I'd like to maybe drill down a little deeper on. One is this, the Abrahamic context and, and the phenomenon of the Hunafat, which is mentioned in the Quran. These are people that don't necessarily seem to align, strictly speaking, with either Judaism or Christianity, but uh, still have a sort of general... Abrahamic background, and, and it seems like something that, that uh, you know, Abrahamic Muhammad would have vibes. encountered. <laughs> um, this, the second thing is, I mean, late antiquity is a period of the, the holy man. You talked about pietism, which I think fits into that. And, and maybe um, you could talk a little bit about how, and we see the rise of these people in, in you know, the, the Roman Empire, we see them in other places, how that phenomenon played out in Arabia, where we do see the rise of, of other people who kind of call themselves prophets or, you know, emerge in this general period as, as sort of messengers of, of some one deity or another. So let me start with your first question. You brought up the Honafa. This is a group within the Arabian Peninsula uh, described in the early Muslim sources as being kind of these pre-Muhammad monotheists. Now, I'm just going to backtrack for one second, which is when we, when we study the Quran, there's no way around the question 
of where did of the origins of Islam. If you're studying the Quran, immediately you're faced, at least in the scholarship, with the question of the origins of Islam. Where did Islam come from? And how does the Quran fit into that? There's two things that are often suggested as the reasons why Islam emerged in Arabia at this time in relation to the Quran. The first is that the Quran introduced monotheism to the Arabs. And the second is that the Quran introduced state building to the Arabs. And so what you have is the Quran is kind of this catalyst that introduces monotheism and state building. And that's how you get the Islamic empire. Now, based on what we've already been discussing, neither one of those statements is true. The monotheistic scripturalist traditions had existed on the Arabian Peninsula for a long time before the Muslims. Similarly, state building or states had existed on the Arabian Peninsula a long time before the Muslims. In fact, there were monotheistic scripturalist states on the Arabian Peninsula immediately before the Islamic period. So none of that explains uh, the origin of Islam in a, in a neat way. Like the presence, the, the introduction of monotheism and state, state making is not the explanation. The Honafa are supposedly these pre-Muhammad monotheists. So it's evidence, again, in the Islamic tradition itself of an awareness that monotheism already existed within the Arabian Peninsula. And the Sira, which is the early biography of the, of the, the earliest biography of the Prophet Muhammad, actually has a section which lists the Honafa. It gives like little biographical entries on various individuals around the Prophet Muhammad who were Honafa, describes them and how they'd become Honafa. Some of them have these journeys that first dabble with Judaism, then Christianity, then they eventually become Honafa. So this term becomes, comes to mean that within the Islamic tradition. In the Quran, the word Honafa or Hanif in the singular is used in a very specific way. And it's used in relation, it's used in relation to Abraham, as you just pointed out, Derek, which is Abraham, the Quran describes as a Hanif, or more specifically, the verses tend to say something like God, Abraham believed in God or Abraham was good, Hanifan, as a Hanif, while he was a Hanif. If you look at the sections of the Quran where the term appears, and other scholars have already made this argument, this is not my argument, um, the word Hanif means in the Quran, Gentile. It means not Jewish and not Christian. Now, it's connected to this idea of monotheism because in the early Muslim tradition, the Hanafa were monotheists, non-Jewish, non-Christian monotheists. But in the Quran, the word Hanif is used in the meaning of being a Gentile or specifically someone who does not have lineage, someone who does not have Israelite lineage specifically. Now, Abraham, of course, logically did not have Israelite lineage because Israel is his grandson. You know, he's before Israel. So he appears as a Hanif because he is before Israel. He's outside of that um, genealogy. It's a Syriac word also, Hampa, which is probably where the Quran gets, uh, you, why the Quran uses that particular formation of the word Hanif. In Syriac, it also means infidel or outsider. But why would the Quran be calling Abraham an outsider or a Gentile? It's because a, a major part of the Quran's argument or the Quran's polemic against uh, scriptural communities, and this of course is hyperbole, you know, it's exaggerating whatever, what, what it's criticizing, is that these other communities imagine themselves as lineages, specifically the children of Israel, which, you know, we could call, we could say these are Jewish communities, but again, it's ambiguous. These could be Judeo-Christian communities or Christian communities, but the children of Israel who imagine themselves as descendants of Israel, the Quran deploys the argument that Abraham was not from this lineage. Abraham was Hanif, was a Gentile, was not an Israelite essentially, and yet was believer, uh, yet was a believer and yet was a monotheist and um, acceptable before God. So it's part of kind of like the polemical arsenal of the Quran. Later on in the early Islamic tradition 
comes to become a term that means pre-Muslim, pre-Muhammadan monotheists. I hope that answers the question that you asked about Hanif. Yes, it does. Yes. The figure of Abraham in the Quran is, a, is an ecumenical symbol in a sense that Abraham represents common ground. Every time Abraham is deployed in the Quran, at least, especially when you're looking at the later surahs, like the larger surahs, um, he represents a common word. He's the common ground between the addressee community, these kind of pre, these early Muslims, and Jewish, Jewish and Christian communities in their orbit. To say that, okay, we don't agree on Jacob, perhaps. We don't agree on Isaac and Ishmael. But we all agree on Abraham. And so the Quran refers to the community as Millet Ibrahim, the nation of Abraham, the Abrahamic community. It's an ecumenical move. It's a way to expand the boundary outward, in a way. So then the, the other question was about the phenomenon of the holy man and, and sort of its ex expression in Arabia. There's, there's, there's a story that, you know, Muhammad began receiving his revelations and he went home to his wife Khadija and, and was worried that he'd gone mad, basically, that he was like, a, you know, a, a, these other kind of uh, esoteric preachers that you would see. And, and again, as I said, this is like a, a late antique phenomenon basically all over the place um yes. but, but yeah so i wonder if we could talk about that in the the arabian context yes absolutely there were lots of prophetic movements within the arabian context at the time of the early muslims in fact right after the death of muhammad there are two huge prophetic movements that emerge in the arabian peninsula organized along similar logics of a, a prophetic community a scriptural community and the early muslim state is is involved in conflict with these prophetic movements because, of course, the early Muslims believe that this is it. This is the finality of prophethood. No more prophets because prophets mean new communities, but this is the final community. So Muhammad's the last prophet. Muhammad, you cannot we cannot gl uh, glean a very clear picture of who the pro of who Muhammad was based solely on the Quran itself because the Quran just mentions Muhammad explicitly by name on four occasions and four places. That's it. The rest of the time. We can kind of see where Muhammad is because the Quran addresses Muhammad in the singular you, anta, because it's addressing the Prophet. So those sections could also be postulated to be about the Prophet Muhammad. Most of what we know about Muhammad is based on early Muslim histories of the Prophet Muhammad, what's called the Sirah, for instance, which describe a charismatic individual who had a group of followers around him who was a monotheist, etc., had like a strong sense of justice, a prophet, the way that we understand it, someone who saw the day-to-day -day mundane cruelties of a society, but unlike others uh, who were okay with those cruelties, uh, he had kind of, you know, prophetic rage, like Moses breaking the tablets. The sort of person who sees the mundane cruelties, but for, for them, it's like the end of the world. You know, that's what a big section of the Quran is about the end of the world. It's about how all of this is coming down. So he was that kind of an individual, but also... Very interested, or the Quran is extremely interested, very insistent that Muhammad is not a shahid, is not a poet. Not like our notion of a poet, you know, someone who, our notion of a poet is something, a very different type of person, you know, somebody who we just roll out, is somebody limited perhaps to an elite context. The poets in Arabia were these extremely politically powerful individuals. They were the satirists of their community or the commentators of their community. But Muhammad is not a poet. He is a prophet which is something different the Quran is trying to, to say. Now, it's clear that Muhammad was an authoritative figure, was a figure who had authority within his community. But what was the nature of this authority? 
not a poet, so not the authority of a poet. What did it mean to be a prophet in this community at this time? He wasn't what's called a Sayyid, which was another figure of authority, which means a tribal chief. Nowhere in the Quran does, uh, is there a genealogy of Muhammad or is he cast as the father of his community. In fact, there's a very specific verse in the Quran which says Muhammad is not the father of any of you. So he's not a patriarch. He's not the Sayyid. He's not a tribal chief. That's not the source of his authority. He's also not what's called a Qaib. He's not a warlord. There were another figure of authority in this context, which is a warlord, somebody designated as the leader of a raid or the leader of the, the, the main guard, essentially, of any community. He's not cast as a Qaib, even though he functioned historically as a Sayyid, as a tribal le leader, and as a warlord at times. But the way the Quran argues that Muhammad's authority is based in his ability to arbitrate. What a prophet is in the world of the Quran is not somebody who's, for, who's telling the future. Of course, the Quran does talk about the future, the future being the end of time. So that is a component of it. But to say Muhammad is a prophet doesn't mean that Muhammad is prophesying the future. When the Quran says Muhammad is a prophet, what it means is that the Muhammad is an arbitrator. He's a mediator, a hakam, somebody who mediates between different groups in a sense, is above different groups. That's how Muhammad is described in the Quran and also in the earliest sources uh, of the Muslims as a mediator. And that's what Nabi in the Quran means. That's what prophet in the Quran means. And these figures of mediators existed for a long time. This was a type of authority that was recognized in the Arabian Peninsula, was understandable to the Arabians at the time. So Hamza, I think we've just got a couple more questions here, and then yes. hopefully we'll be able to have you back and we could go into the actual Quran itself. So how did, how did political authority function in a place like Mecca? What, 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 were the, what was governance uh, like? What did, it, what did it look like? What were the major power bases? Because I imagine that the Prophet Muhammad would wind up upsetting some of these. So before next episode where we could get to that, maybe you could just describe in the world of the Quran, what does political authority look like? So again, there's two types of political figures that dominate the world of the Quran. The first is the Sayyid, who is a tribal chief. And the, the power of the tribal chief, in some ways, is material because they control the, the material resources of their tribe. This includes not just um, movable of property. It also includes things like access to sources of water. So that's one way that the tribal chief derived authority. The other way that the Sayyid derived authority was the Sayyid controlled cultural capital, control, had cultural power, because typically the, the Sayyid families, the, the families of the tribal chief, were closely associated with the civic cult, with the cultic practices also. So they had tremendous cultural power and also real power. I mean, both of them are real power, but also had power in material terms. So when we think about uh, politicking in the context of the Quran, it was along these two axes, either as this kind of patriarchal figure, a figure who derived authority as the patriarch of a tribal, of an agnatic grouping, or through the cultural power, the, the, the Sayyid controlled a particular sacred site, and that's where their power came from, and that's where the conflict or the political maneuverings were. That's where, where the political maneuvers. The other figure of authority that I mentioned earlier was the Qa'id, who was, again, a warlord. These were powerful men in this context who were given authority by tribes during a period of conflict and would become the leader of the community for a very specific period of time, did not necessarily derive their authority from lineage from, as, the, as the Sayyid did. When we speak of governance, that's a more complex question. Maybe I can get into it more next time. But 
we don't see, for instance, a regularized collection of taxes in this context, right? The sort of things that we think of when we think of a state. We don't think we don't see a standing army or a police force that is um, imposing the authority of this of a of a state. So we can't really. That's why I would hesitate to call Mecca a city state. It's more like an area where the lots of people are sedentary, lots of people have settled, and then there's certain groups of certain um, individuals who hold more sway. The way in which this power was or the way politicking happened outside of conflict was through tribal councils. So within Mecca, for instance, there was a tribal uh, council, a group that comprised the leaders of the various, you know, elites within the, within the city that would discuss and decide affairs in some kind of, um, through some kind of rudimentary democratic process. Uh, But that's what it looked like really. In certain cities, you see something that resembles kingship. Like, for instance, in the city of Yathrib, which is where eventually, which is where uh, Muhammad and his followers go, um, you don't have a tribal council. You actually have figures that are king-like. So, again, they derive their authority through genealogy, but their genealogical authority is recognized by groups outside of their specific clan itself. Other clans also recognize their authority uh, to rule. And then as you go farther north, you get closer to the Roman and Persian Empire, or if you go south towards Yemen, then you get uh, vassal states that are connected directly to the imperial centers that have a very different type of you know, formation or framework in them. So um, I want to reward everybody who's listened uh, all the way through this with a little bit of historiography, because that's always popular uh, for people. It's, it's the candy. Uh, it's the candy <laughs> at the end, yeah. I just wonder if you could talk, you know, as we close out here about uh, some of the, shall we say, theories about Quranic origins that have emerged over the years and, you know, you, the, the Wandsboro School and, you know, sort of the ultimate zany expression of alternative kind of revisionist theories being Hagarism, uh, which is infamous for anybody who's studied early yes. Islam. but. You know, not just to kind of pick on these guys, but but as part of a process where I think the field has gone from, you know, early on just sort of kind of repeating the traditional narrative and accepting the traditional narrative to the period where you had a lot of these revisionist scholars emerge who said, you know, wait a minute, the the sources for the traditional narrative are very late. They're they're not, you know, they're not great great sources. There's some things in here we don't agree with, and then kind of went a little bit off the wall, let's say. Uh, and then the field has, in in many respects, kind of come back to the traditional narrative, I think on a sounder uh, basis, on a sounder evidentiary basis, and it, uh, with more nuance than, um, you know, kind of in the early days. But but can you talk about that process and, and how that's played out? I know, you know, we don't want to get into, like, too deep in the weeds here, but, <laughs> but just an overview, just sort of an overview of how that's that's developed. Yes, great question. So uh, just in a nutshell, like what you've described is totally accurate, which is that you get this burgeoning, this emergence of highly, highly revisionist history of the early Islamic period, which in my view has been very useful because it's opened up historians to all these other types of sources, other types of questions to bring to this corpus, to bring to the Quran. So very useful. Like you mentioned Wandsboro. I'd also mentioned the late um, Patricia Krona, who was 
she wrote a book called The Mechanism. She's the, she's the author. You just mentioned her, Hagerism. She's the author of Hagerism. So Hagerism, for those of you who might not be um, up to speed with early Islamic, early Islamic studies, is a theory um, proposed by Patricia Crona. And, oh my God, I'm totally forgetting the other, other author. She wrote it with... Um, now, Michael Cook. Michael Cook. Right. Uh, Both of whom disavowed the theory yes. later on, we should say, before we like Both, make them sound yes. like zany conspiracy <laughs> no, theorists. No. They, Both they of later kind of washed their hands of it. Yeah. But the process, I mean, the process, I feel like that was a very important stepping stone. Hagerism, I feel, was a very important stepping stone to get to the type of scholarship that we have today, which is that it introduced, it really brought suspicion of the later sources into the into the into the main into the mainstream of Islamic studies, which is that yes, these early Islamic sources. Uh, that we use traditionally to understand the world of the Quran pose a lot of problems. One major problem that I, we talked about at the beginning of our, our conversation is that these are post-imperial sources. These are sources produced entirely in the heart of empire, whereas we're, we're, we're trying to get to the period before the empire. And so there's no way that these sources, their explanation or their portrayal of that earlier world was not informed or shaped by the imperial context in some ways. It's very hard to take that out. These sources were elite sources. These were sources re- representing a very small group of people. So all of that is correct. All of th- that suspicion, I feel like, is useful. Yes. We should say for people who don't know the, the theory, I mean, Hagarism basically boils down to Islam is a Jewish messianic movement. That, that, yes. That's their sort of reconstruction of, of the history, which, again, is so bonkers that it's, you know, I feel bad even saying it about uh, about them, but they did disavow uh, later yes. on. So, th- yes. but that's the that's the theory, and it's it, the exercise is sort of reconstructing a history of Islam based only on kind of the very scant contemporary sources that that exist outside the tradition. Right, like what happens if you try to st- start explaining early Islam based solely on these contemporaneous external sources, like some Syriac sources, some Aramaic. I think she even like uses Armenian and Coptic, all these sources. But the wonderful bit of that was that it brought all of these linguistic traditions to the attention of early Islam historians who up to that point perhaps were primarily focused on Arabic, Arabic sources. And maybe they'll look at some Hebrew sources if, if not. But it really brought... It brought Syriac studies and Coptic studies and studies into the main. Actually, Hagarism doesn't talk about the Horn of Africa, which I feel like is a big problem. Uh, I mean, there are many big problems, but one big problem is that it really, really wants to make Islam seem like a um, northern phenomena, something that emerges out of the Jewish and Christian context of Syria and Iraq and not something that's from the Arabian Peninsula. Now, we've come a long way from that. That opened up the door and set some stepping stones, and the scholars disavowed the 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 results of the the actual theory itself, but maybe not the process that got them there. Um, now, where we stand is, I feel there's more sophistication in how scholars look at the early Muslim sources. So instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, scholars are applying or historians are applying other types of techniques to glean from these sources things that might be useful for the pre-Islamic period. I mean, a very basic technique could be kind of like the criterion of dissimilarity. The early Muslim s- sources or, that describe the world of the Quran say many things that are embarrassing to the elites of the Islamic empire, would be embarrassing to the elites of the Islamic empire. So their inclusion within these early Muslim histories means maybe that they belong to an earlier period. So historians can use techniques like that to glean from the early Muslim sources 
information that might be useful about the pre-Islamic period. Also, another thing that's, that's changed is just the kind of the linguistic arsenal that now Quranic studies scholars bring to the table, which is that now if you're doing Quranic studies in the Western Academy, oftentimes you'll have some training in Hebrew Aramaic, you'll have some training in Greek and Syriac, or at some point in your training, you'll have you'll have had to de- deal with other corpora in the world of the Quran, which I think has enriched the study of the Quran tremendously and is a, is a departure from previous kind of like the positivist, uh, the opposite of the revisionist, the positivist type of scholarship, which just looked at the interpretive tradition, the internal Muslim interpretive tradition, without recourse, without looking at the rabbinic corpus, the Syriac corpus, looking at these other collections of texts enriches our reading of the Quran in a, in a you know, it, it, it opens up angles to the text that I think are really useful for the historian. That's the state of the field. Hamza Zafar. Associate Professor in the Department of Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures. Thank you so much for joining us on American Prestige. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.